1: While Idahoans are trying to figure out how to get vaccinated, the legislature is trying to thread the needle on federal funding and curbing executive powers. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Dr. Tommy Alquist joins us to talk about his efforts to get vaccine information out to Idahoans. Then Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press updates us on the legislature's newest proposals to put the governor's powers in check. But first, last week, we reported that the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare has said that they were legally prohibited from collecting race and ethnicity data after reports that white people are being vaccinated at twice the rate as black and Hispanic people in other states, according to CNN. Both Idaho Reports and the Idaho Statesman independently reviewed relevant code and administrative rules and could find no such prohibition on the collection of demographic data. After our reporting this week, Director Dave Jepsen of the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare told lawmakers and the media that there is in fact no such law prohibiting that data collection. Rather, vaccine recipients aren't required to provide it. But questions still remain over who is receiving those vaccines, especially as there are big county-by-county county disparities in the percentage of residents who have been immunized against COVID-19. In Blaine County, for example, about 13% of residents are vaccinated, one of the highest percentages in the state. Immediately south in Lincoln County, just 2.9% are vaccinated, the lowest in Idaho. Valley County reports about 16 percent of residents are vaccinated, but all of its neighboring counties are at five or six percent. This week, we looked at census data to try and find some correlations. You'll find more on the Idaho Reports blog. The link is at IdahoPTV.org slash Idaho Reports. On Monday, Idahoans ages 65 and older became eligible to receive the COVID-19 vaccine and across the state, residents and providers reported that appointments filled up almost immediately in some cases. Department of Health and Welfare Director Dave Jefferson reiterated on Tuesday that everyone will eventually be able to get vaccinated, but the process will be slow for the foreseeable future due to the small supply coming into the state each week.
2: Uh, Yesterday, February 1st, those 65 and older became eligible for the vaccine. There are roughly 265,000 people in Idaho who are 65 and older, Uh, but as a reminder, we are receiving about 25,000 first doses a week. That means it will take several months to get through this group. Uh, We ask for your patients of the public and those that are 65 and older. Everyone 65 and older who wants the vaccine will be able to do so but those appointments will happen over the next coming several months.
1: Meanwhile, Idahoans are continuing to express frustration at difficulties securing appointments or even figuring out where they can get vaccinated in the first place. Dr. Tommy Alquist of Crush the Curve Idaho launched a new website, VaccinateThe208.com, that puts statewide information on one page as well as guidance on how to best make those appointments. Dr. Alquist joined me Friday to talk about the site as well as what he wishes the state and legislature would do differently. Thanks so much for joining us today. Tell us about vaccinate the 208.com.
2: We're really excited to have another resource for folks out there. There's a lot of people trying to help, but as the vaccination effort started, we thought, how can we be a solution there? We we actually offered some technology solutions to the state. We've also offered to be a, uh, what we really wanted to do, Melissa, I'm really worried about the disadvantaged, you know, ill and those with comorbidities and maybe those that with English as a second language. So we. We would love to do some mass test sites for for those people that may be, uh, may be being left behind. Um, we actually turned in a formal proposal to the state, and when that didn't go through, we thought, what else can we do? I think an awareness campaign is important for several reasons, and that's what Vaccinate the 208 is. One is it's just getting accurate information out there in another way so that people can look up and find out what the truth is regarding the vaccine. Secondly, we are translating everything we're doing into Spanish, because I do think that's been one of the holes in the pandemic, is getting information out to folks that they can actually read and digest in a way that, they, that makes sense to them. And then thirdly, nice cat, I like that.
1: She likes cameos. <laughs>
2: that's awesome. Thirdly, um, you know, it's not ideal. Ideally, we would have had the technology, so that we had a clearinghouse for these these testing uh, sites, so that you really connected patients to capacity. Um, that would have been the way to do it. But when that didn't work out, we thought at least we can put a couple of our employees full time calling around the state and at least automate um, some information to help people. So that's what the effort's about. We 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 believe that uh, awareness is is the key to this, and and all of us, you know, doing our part to try to maybe maybe take some of the misinformation that's out there about vaccinations and and get people vaccinated. So hopefully we're part of the solution.
1: Now, going through your site, I noticed that it's pretty easy to use. I know if I'm in Cottonwood, Idaho, where I can go to get vaccinated or at least who to try and contact for an appointment. What kind of efforts are your staff going through to get that information? Because I know individuals have had a heck of a time trying to do the same thing.
2: Yeah. It's- you know, I, I got in trouble for saying this last interview, but the but the '90s called and want their technology back. Ideally, uh, ideally, w- what we did with labs is we had daily electronically labs reporting capacity, and then we hooked them up electronically. So that's what we should be doing. But what we have is we have two employees calling every day and trying to keep that list as updated as possible, just trying to help people. Um, it's not ideal and, 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 you know, it's not going to be perfect either because if they call in the morning and things change by the afternoon, but we're trying to update that every day just so that there's one place for Idahoans to go, you know, vaccinate the 208, go there and we'll at least help you get started to where you're going to go. Again, it's not going to be perfect, um, but, but that's what we're doing. Uh, very low tech phone calls, trying to update the website and at least have information out there that they can use.
1: Now, is this something that you would have done anyway, or was this a direct response to the lack of centralized information and the confusion that's already out there?
2: You know, Melissa, I like to think that we're thinking out ahead six months. And I think six months ago, after watching what happened, I mean, if you look, listen, no one's really talked about what happened with contract tracing in, in the state of Idaho. It didn't happen. And no one's talked about just testing and the confusion, and it just, it was you know it it just just and and it got out of control right so the next thing we thought about is hey in that same system of 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 letting stuff filter down you're going to have vaccinations being sent out to all these healthcare providers who my my goodness they're doing the best they can right but it's going to overwhelm the system so we started talking about it 6 months ago we actually took the, the technology that we were using for testing and started tweaking it 6 months ago in preparation for saying hey someone's going to need to be thinking about this and i've said to you before we're we're helping other states with these same problems Sometimes we act like in Idaho that somehow this is a unique problem for us. It's not. It's the same thing happening in other states. So we've been helping other jurisdictions with the same problem. Um, So we've been ready to help, I guess I would say, uh, proactively, knowing that it was probably going to be a bit of a cluster
1: you know, as I have looked at vaccination rates by county, I've noticed some big disparities as your team has contacted all of these providers. Have they noticed any disparities, whether on number of sites in a given region or availability of appointments?
2: Boy, that is a really great question. Um, I don't think we know enough yet. I think over the coming weeks and months, we'll be able to track that and we are. But right now, everyone is just scrambling because there's so much uh, there's so much misinformation out there. There's so much lack of knowledge of okay, when am I getting my next dose? What are we supposed to be doing? How much is the state getting? So right now, we're just trying to get our feet underneath us. But that is a fantastic question that hopefully we can track that because, as your your to your point, a lot of times we think you know the great state of Ada. You know, you got Ada in Canyon County, but you do have the rest of Idaho that's trying to figure this out as well. And as we know, going through this pandemic, that those rural communities get devastated um, and need assistance and help with these bigger issues. And it's the role of public health. So we're just trying to be a solution and a help uh, for them.
1: Is this something in your view that the state could have done by itself?
2: Oh, that's a a big question. I I don't know. I mean, I I just don't know how. (laughs) I mean, you got a department of health and welfare you've got seven health districts you've got millions and millions of dollars that the state i mean sometimes we act like the state the, the federal government hasn't helped us well they've given us gobs of cash to deal with this right um so i don't know I, I i wish i knew i wish i was in the inside of their organization and knew what they were doing to address these same problems we don't have that luxury Um, So we're a nonprofit. We have a little board of six people. We have a little staff of nine full-time employees. And we're just seeing problems as they're coming and trying to be part of the solution. But my short answer was, I sure would have hoped so. I mean, with the amount of resources and people and everything else they have, yeah, I think they, 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 they could have been a little more proactive and prepared for this.
1: You know, you mentioned the federal government has given the states gobs of cash, but they've also given states conflicting information on how many doses that we are going to receive in the future. There's been a decentralization of data collection from the CDC under the direction of the previous administration. And so what more could the state have done with this well, uncertainty and with the lack of direction in some cases from the federal government?
2: Well, so two issues. I mean listen, I am never gonna defend the coronavirus response from the Trump administration, right? That's, that's a separate issue. But I also can't sit here and pretend that the state of Idaho wasn't given hundreds of millions of dollars. There, was, there would be nothing wrong on your own initiative, which is happening in other states, to say, hey, this is dysfunctional, so we're gonna try to figure this out and make sure that we're taking care of our own people. So uh, just sitting back and saying, hey, it was their fault, they decentralized, they're not reporting, whatever, yeah, that's all true, but but it's not, you know, it doesn't stop you from being proactive on your own and saying, okay, let's take care of our people. We, don't, most, we only have 1.8 million people in Idaho. <laughs> I mean, there's not that many people to take care of, right, here, uh, versus other large counties and other places, the problems that they have in more of these urban centers. So So with the amount of money, I guess the question you asked was, Um, could they or should they have done something different? I'm just saying with the amount of resources and money and people that they had, regardless of what Trump did, I would have liked to seen them be more proactive in preparing for this. And I think there's, you know, I think they've been given a huge pass.
1: You've also been critical of the legislature's pandemic response, and, and you said previously that you had hoped that they would be more proactive in helping with some of these issues. So, what would that response look like, in your view?
2: Well, well, uh, Melissa, you know when so I, I had the pleasure of visiting all seven health districts and seeing what they were doing pre-pandemic what they were doing for vaccinations, what they were doing for lower income health care in, in, in supporting counties and local jurisdictions. It was a big part of what I did before. And there were giant holes in it. The other thing is the governance of our seven health districts doesn't make any sense at all from a hierarchical perspective. I mean, how does this work? How do they function? So going into a pandemic, I believe, I, I actually hope that our legislator and our state and the people knew that we had some problems right so now we have a pandemic right and it's dominated our economy it's had our kids out of school it's it's been one of the hardest things that people have had to go through i just thought that the legislature would have asked those questions how can we improve our public health responses in idaho what are the holes we have in our local health districts what are the ways that we could better fix some of these problems yeah, we're in the middle of a pandemic, but it's not too soon, Melissa, to start saying, let's be part of the solution so that we're better prepared to finish this pandemic out. And what are we going to do for the next time? So those are the things that I was looking for. Um, and, and, and frankly, I haven't heard any of that. Um, instead, it's been I think David Pate said it best. It's been how do we strip more of the, of the control from the governor? How do we I mean I understand that there's a primary election next year, right? I mean, we all get the joke, but you're also in the middle of a pandemic and you represent people whose livelihoods and lives are at risk. So I thought they would have balanced this a little bit between rallying to the base for a primary election and trying to, to help with some legislation and fixes to systems that, that affect people.
1: Uh, as we look ahead, what's your concern for the next problem that we might hit?
2: You know, Melissa, one of the things that frustrates me, and I, and I don't know why uh, I'm built this way. Maybe it's because I'm an ER doctor, right? So we're always thinking about what's the next thing, what's the next thing, what's the next thing. You kind of triage, you, you get stabilized, and then it's what's the next thing. And we have not done that during this pandemic. So for me, we should be talking nonstop right now about the next school year. That may sound crazy, but we're in February, and by a fall of next year, where are we gonna be with vaccinations? Where are we gonna be with getting kids back to school? Because one of the tragedies of this whole entire response was if we would have tested and traced better, if we would have had more cohesive protocols at our schools, we wouldn't have had the shutdowns that we've had. And so for people that are saying, hey, the governor did too much or people are doing too much, the reason why we did is we didn't have control of this virus. So now we've got a chance going into the fall to have the right protocols. My goodness, it's what they're doing in other states. We should be talking nonstop with the state help, with the state education board, with local districts, more of a cohesive response. Uh, I I applaud David Pate for what he's done with the West Ada School District. I I think he's looking at next fall already, but those are the things we ought to be doing now is saying how do we prepare for next fall and not waste the time like we did last summer. Uh, Last last summer was crazy for me because I kept just sitting back thinking, you know we've got this you know we got this window what are we doing and the days passed and then then it was fall and now we're now we're almost back to spring right where, where we're going to get this other next pass with the virus but we got to get ready for the fall that's what i'd be saying in every single way at every level
1: have you brought any specific proposals to the state regarding the next the, the coming school year
2: uh, we have not because the last proposal we submitted to the state was uh, was w- wanting to help with the vaccinations. Uh, that was a proposal that went in a few weeks ago, and uh, but but we probably will. I, I look forward to working with David Paid, and maybe we can start coming up with some some solutions. There's a lot we can learn from other states in preparation for the fall, so we'll work on that. Um, right now, it's vaccinate the 208.
1: We have more with Dr. Alquist online. You'll find the link at IdahoPTV.org Idaho IdahoReports and on our social media pages. In one of the first lengthy floor debates of this year's legislative session, on Wednesday senators wrestled with a proposed constitutional amendment by Senator C. Scott Groh. The amendment would prohibit the future legalization of all drugs that aren't already legal in Idaho. Possession of a Schedule I or Schedule II controlled substance at the end of the current legislative session outside of narrow examples, like for clinical trials, would be banned by the state constitution unless it was approved for prescription use by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and also permitted in statute by the legislature. During Wednesday's debate, senators were split on whether this was the best approach to drug policy.
0: Why a constitutional amendment? That's the question I keep hearing, and I'm sure many of you have heard the same, same thing. Idaho needs a constitutional amendment prohibiting all of these things of the production, manufacture, you heard it read here shortly, or use of certain psychoactive drugs. Why? Senators, we have a duty to protect our children, our families,
2: our communities from the scourge of drugs and the drug culture which we have seen
0: go clear across this nation
1: no matter what we do here as the legislature, no matter how we think we can um, legislate temperance and morality, the bottom line is, is it's a personal choice. I have witnessed just as much damage to family, to children, to property, to lives being destroyed from the use of alcohol, which is condoned and taxed by the state of Idaho, which businesses were allowed to continue the state alcohol commission even when other businesses were shut down during the pandemic
0: last night,
2: as I talked to my son about the trucking business, he said, Dad, if they legalize marijuana in this state, I'll lose better than half my workforce. And I said, Son, I don't know if we as a state legislature, legislature, have the ability to protect you and your family.
1: Ultimately, that resolution passed with the two thirds vote required for constitutional amendments. If two thirds of the House also approves, the amendment will be on the general election ballot for voters in November 2022. We have much more about the proposal on the Idaho Reports blog. On Tuesday, Governor Brad Little announced that he is taking Idaho out of its modified stage two, meaning group size limits moved from 10 to 50 people and certain large gatherings like trade shows and weddings can now appeal to local health districts for exemptions as long as they show they're following health guidelines. Governor Little cited a drop in hospitalizations and an increase in hospital capacity as the reason for the move, but Senator Steve Vick thought the change was political.
2: It appears to me, and I, my, my several of my colleagues have said the same thing, that we're in a little bit of a chess match with the gentleman on the second floor. It's interesting to me that on January 19th, HCR 2, which lifted all restrictions on gathering size, passed out of committee. And the next day, the gentleman on the second floor lifted some of those restrictions.
1: Joining me to discuss the continued wrestling match between the governor and legislature is Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press. Betsy, the legislature's frustration with the governor hasn't dissipated at all in the last few weeks.
0: Well, I mean, it's changed, I would say. Um, Certainly this uh, chess match, as Senator Vick called it, is not over by any means, but we did see one round of it in. And that is that the governor, when he moved Idaho back to stage three to less restrictive um, restrictions having to do with COVID-19, he revoked the very public health order that all the legislators were trying to target. And so you saw resolutions get pulled back because, They were trying to revoke it, he revoked it for them, and instead put in place basically voluntary guidelines. Um, Everything that's in place now as far as COVID-19 in Idaho uh, from the state level is Voluntary. It does not have enforcement. It doesn't have criminal penalties. Now that may not be true of local ordinances, um, but the governor basically took a big step toward what the legislature was trying to accomplish. And so the legislature kind of changed its aims. Instead of now targeting the governor's emergency declarations, which were what raised the concerns about losing our federal funds, the very funding that's funding the Idaho National Guard call out, the rollout of the vaccine, they are now targeting Um, all future (laughs) public health orders and what kinds of restrictions can be imposed and that we'll never again have any kind of order in Idaho that would say anyone's not essential or that would limit limit rights to gather. And so we're seeing lots now of legislation along those lines, including bills in both houses. There was yet another uh, resolution introduced just today that attempts to void the 50-person gathering guideline that the governor issued for public and private gatherings because two legislators were very upset about an upcoming girls basketball tournament. That actually isn't even affected by that 50-person guideline, it's a different thing. But you're right, feelings are still running high.
1: And these these proposals from the legislature aren't happening in a vacuum. There are a lot of constituents in Idaho who are bringing their, these concerns to there are lawmakers, but it's like we're having two different conversations here, right? One that is using metrics that are based on public health and hospitalizations, and one that is very concerned with uh, things like the economy, um, the ability to gather, and the uh, ability to uh, you know, make sure that businesses aren't closed. Uh, are these two things always in conflict with each other. Is there a middle ground here that you've seen in any of these discussions?
0: Well, I think that when the governor made his change, he cited public health metrics. He said the reason he made his change was because we were seeing a decrease in cases and a decrease in hospitalizations, which in fact has been quite pronounced, particularly as far as our decline in new cases every day. Um, From the legislature, we're hearing a very different story. What the legislative majority has been focused on is basically attempting to legislate away the pandemic completely and quote, get back to normal. And we're hearing that repeatedly from Republican legislators, including House State Affairs Chairman uh, Brent Crane today when he introduced this new legislation, uh, this new resolution about gathering, saying we have gotta get back to normal, we've gotta make it just like it always was. Now, of course, the pandemic isn't over as other legislators have acknowledged, but There is certainly a drive among the majority in the legislature to try to legislate it away, to get things back to where they were when we didn't have a pandemic. And that raises issues about whether instead of making it go away, it might actually make it worse. Maybe spread will increase if we don't take public health measures, follow guidelines, as the governor has asked, um, in order to lower that risk. Um, so yeah, there are definitely two different conversations going on. It's very easy to see who's on which side of the conversation because here in the State House, um, the majority of Republican legislators are not wearing masks. I've even seen some legislators who are new and who arrived at the beginning of the session wearing masks because you know they are required right now in Ada County and Boise, although the legislature is exempt. Um, and because there was a public health emergency, stop doing so, kind of you know, align with the cool kids who really don't care about the pandemic anymore. Um, we've seen, of course, earlier, Representative Heather Scott in the House announced that by her measure, the pandemic's over. Um, for those who are still getting sick, it's not. Um, so yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting conversation. We are still seeing very few members of the public here at the Capitol.
1: And lobbyists and other reporters too. I know a lot of them are staying away. Uh, Before we leave this week, I wanna ask you about Medicaid funding and a big change to the governor's proposal this week in the Joint Finance Committee.
0: That's right. Um, The Medicaid budget is incredibly complicated. And within the governor's recommendation, there was a proposal calling for 30 million in state general fund cost containment measures to be taken in next year so that the state wouldn't provide that 30 million in funding and at the same time we would lose far more in federal matching funds to bring it to a total of 118 million less overall in funding for Medicaid. But the governor didn't propose a specific way to achieve that cost containment. Um, The administration did come to a Senate committee and say, why don't we just let the Department of Health and Welfare at its discretion cut reimbursements to providers when it needs to for savings? And the legislature said, no, (laughs) that's not what we're gonna do. They refused to even introduce the bill. So there's no way to accomplish that savings. So when the Medicaid budget came up for its hearing in JFAC this week, the governor's office withdrew that proposal, but not just because it couldn't get the legislation in, because there's been a change from the federal level. The federal matching rate for regular Medicaid has gone up significantly, meaning tens of millions of dollars more in federal funding for the state that the state doesn't have to cover in its Medicaid program because of the pandemic. And two weeks ago, the Biden administration announced that that increase in what's called the (laughs) FMAP, the matching rate, is gonna last for the entire calendar year. Well, that means that the state will get something like $27 million in the current budget year and something like 56 million in the next budget year that was not anticipated in the governor's budget. So the health and welfare director, Dave Jepson, said there, the, the administration is no longer recommending that 30 million cut. Um, in state funds and is instead recommending covering that with those savings from having the increased federal match and also because there will still be money left over, starting what they're calling a stabilization fund to hedge against future Medicaid cost increases, which have long been a concern.
1: Betsy, we have about half a minute left, but briefly, January revenue numbers came in stronger than expected.
0: That's right, and it's the seventh straight month that they have done that, $58 million more than anticipated. The state surplus just keeps building and building.
1: All right, Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for watching. Again, we have much more online at our blog and social media. You'll find the links at idahoptv.org slash Reports.